Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last month, the American Academy of Pediatrics and Children's Hospitals in the U.S. declared a national emergency in children's mental health, saying the pandemic has worsened trends that were seen more than a decade ago. Rates of childhood mental health concerns and suicide rose steadily between 2010 and 2020. And by 2018, suicide was the second leading cause of death for youth ages 10 to 24. The crisis has intensified with dramatic increases in emergency department visits for all mental health emergencies, including suspected suicide attempts. Today, where we live, we talk about what's being seen in Connecticut and possible solutions to help children and their families. Coming up, we'll hear from the head of pediatric psychology at Connecticut Children's in Hartford. And U.S. Senator Chris Murphy will join us later to talk about efforts to strengthen federal mental health support after the passage of the 2016 Mental Health Reform Act. Now, have you or someone close to you struggled to connect their child with mental health support? We want to hear from you, too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. And a reminder, um, if you are needing help uh, for someone in your family, you can always call 211 for a connection to resources in our state. Now, joining us now on Zoom is Alieski. Alieska Tilly. She's an intern at the Jordan Porco Foundation. This is a suicide prevention program that was founded in 2011 by Ernie and Marissa Porco after they lost their son Jordan when he was a college freshman. Now, Alieska is a graduate student of social work at the University of Connecticut. Alieska, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, you agreed to come on the show to share uh, your personal story. And that story uh, helped lead you to the career that you have now uh, in social work. And so yeah. if, you're, if you could start by telling us uh, when you were an adolescent and starting to have uh, some mental health uh, concerns, you know, how old were you? And, and can you describe that period in your life? Yeah, so I would say my mental health um, definitely started in eighth grade is kind of the area where I can really pinpoint reflecting back and feeling absolutely isolated. I had very low self-esteem. I felt very lonely and um, I felt very numb all the time. I didn't really feel happy or sad. I think a lot of times depression is deemed as something where you're feeling very sad, but um, oftentimes you feel really nothing at all. It's kind of a lack of emotion. And so that's definitely when it started was about when I was 12, 13, that age. Mm -hmm. Um, And it led into freshman year of high school, where I actually found out what I was experiencing through an online platform called Tumblr. 
Um, and so the fact that I found out what depression was through an online platform is something <laughs> very bizarre because I didn't know what I was going through. And I finally found out this word depression. And I thought to myself, wow, this is exactly what I'm experiencing. And social media can definitely have its dark side too, because Tumblr was also where I found out what self-harm was. <laughs> and so it, it kind of has this, you know, flip side where you can find out very negative stuff. But at that time, it was a area of support for me where mm. I realized I wasn't alone and I was able to kind of put a label towards what I was experiencing and what I was going through. You know, I think of uh, the middle school uh, uh, young people. And uh, when we think about the struggles that uh, so many of us uh, deal with uh, during that time, and you describe uh, these symptoms that you were having, and then just by going on, I believe, Tumblr, yeah, you were like, oh, wait, this sounds like what I'm going through. And so you heard and read the word depression, but you'd never heard that before in, in your life? No, I, I, I believe that we maybe talked about it in health class, but it was always talked about as this mysterious thing that you know, someone out there experiences. It was very distantly talked about that it was, you know, statistics, you know, one in blank people were experienced this, but it's a very distant sort of, you know, <laughs> mysterious thing that wasn't very relatable. It wasn't talked about like any of you could be struggling. It was more, well, sometimes people experience suicidal thoughts or experience self-harm. And it was kind of like, mm, I don't really know why they do that, but this is part of the curriculum. Mm. <laughs> so it was very unrelatable the way that it was taught in school. And um, I think still taught in a very stigmatized way. So it was very difficult to relate to. So I, it might have been talked about in school, but not in a relatable way whatsoever. Did you feel that you could reach out to your parents or other family members or any adult at that point in your life, Alieska? Um, I was very afraid of going to a school counselor because I had this mentality that they were going to tattle on me, um, that they were going to sort of tell my parents what was happening. And although I have extremely supportive parents, I actually come from a very loving, um, very nurturing family. And I think that there was a major part of me that thought people wouldn't understand that I would, you know, be deemed as crazy or, you know, especially when in, in sophomore year, when I was at my worst and I started, you know, self-harming and having really bad suicidal ideation, I very much thought that people would not understand what I was experiencing and that I would just reach more scrutiny than I would reach help. And so even though coming from that supportive area, I really feared about reaching out for help because I didn't think that there was help available and I didn't think that people would understand because I felt very alone in this experience. You're hearing Alieska Tilly here on Where We Live. She's an intern at the Jordan Porco Foundation, a graduate student of social work at the University of Connecticut. Alieska is sharing with us uh, when uh, she first developed mental health uh, issues as an adolescent. And um, we're talking about this because of this national emergency for children's mental health. Uh, clinicians and others uh, warning that uh, so many uh, factors have come together, especially in this pandemic, 
and there's a real concern with how uh, to reach young people who are struggling. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Alieska, you said that you, you were having, you were depressed, you were self-harming. So when did things start to turn around? When were you able to get help? So... I think things really started to turn around for me junior year of high school, where I learned some coping mechanisms to deal with panic attacks I was having, as well as the self-harm. So um, a coping mechanism that I learned is called the 54321 method, and it's mostly for anxiety and panic attacks. Um, and it's basically where you list five things you can see in the room, four things you can feel in that moment three things that you can hear in that moment, two things you can taste in the moment, and then one thing that you can smell. Um, and it really helps to kind of ground and get a bearing on where you are. And so that really helped with a lot of different things that kind of led into um, self-coping mechanisms for the other things that I was struggling through. I then found an app called Calm Harm, which helps to deal with self-harm urges and give you different alternatives that you can use. It's free. It's on the app store. And that was a big help for me. Um, and senior year, I started going to therapy and that overall helped me really understand what I was struggling with and what I was going through. Um, and another thing I quickly want to mention is another reason why I felt I couldn't get help earlier was I went to Danbury high school um, and we're a low income school. We have mostly people of color and in school districts like this, there is a real lack of resources that were given. So I actually recently did research on Hartford and they have in their school districts, one counselor for every 592 students. Mm. And so I think one of the major things was I wanted to get help, but I didn't know where that help was. I didn't know where the school counselor was. I didn't know if we even had a school counselor. Um, and there's, you know, a severe lack of resources out there. So I think that was another thing that came into play. And I eventually found a private psychologist to go to, but that's not affordable for everyone. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, you were able to reach out for help and things got better for you. But what's so telling about your story, Alieska, as we talk about children's mental health, is it so much a, of the connections that you made was because of you, that you didn't have that additional support. Um, you mentioned uh, going to a high school that um, did not have uh, the type of resources uh, that could help uh, students like yourself. Uh, you know, and this is troubling as, again, we talk about this in this national context. Now you're at the Jordan Porco Foundation. And so when you think about your lived experience and when you, when you see these statistics, uh, we'll be talking uh, coming up that uh, you know, nationally in uh, 2020, um, emergency department visits for suspected suicide attempts increased nearly 51 percent among 12 to 17 year olds. I mean, how do you react to that and with the work that you're doing now? I think, you know, it's unfortunate that it's not surprising to me that these rates have increased, especially during the pandemic, because one of the main struggles for me that I felt when I was struggling was that loneliness, feeling that, you know, you're the only one experiencing this. And when you're socially isolated from everyone during a pandemic, imagine how much lonelier you might feel in that moment. Um, so one of the major things at Jordan Porco Foundation that is a big belief of ours is that mental health can affect anyone. 
So it can affect young people, it can affect um, older people. And during a pandemic, we're obviously realizing these rates are going up. So it is affecting pretty much everyone. Um, and the main goals is to prevent suicide, promote mental health and send a message of hope for young people. And that message of hope entails that fact that you're not alone and that you're not the only one who is struggling, um, even though it may feel that you're distant from everyone or you're socially isolated in this very, very hard time of a pandemic. Um, and so for me, that's my main goal. And that's why I wanted to work in community organizing and nonprofits is to reach a larger demographic of young people and let them know that they're not alone and let them know that, you know, there are resources out there that they can be connected with and overall try to improve the way that the mental health industry functions. And hearing your story and what we hear now and see uh, with data that young people often turn uh, to the internet, to social media apps, and you know there needs to be some caution there uh, when so connecting young people to the right resources online, Alieska. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I think social media is a very powerful tool. I think that it's a great area to start those conversations and to realize and connect with other people who are also struggling to help you realize you're not alone. And the more that we have these conversations, the more that we talk about it, that's a really important factor. And it is important to recognize that dark side of social media, right? When I was young, I found out how to self-harm and what that was through social media. But it also was a platform that lent me to connect with people who knew how I was feeling and could share their coping mechanisms, could share any tips that they had. Um, And so I think starting these conversations and utilizing social media for that reason is very important, but it is also important to keep in mind um, kind of the toxicness that can also come with that. Elieska Tilly is here on Where We Live, an intern at the Jordan Porco Foundation. It's the suicide prevention program founded by Jordan's parents in 2011, Ernie and Marissa Porco. Allie is now a graduate student of social work at the University of Connecticut. Allie, uh, stay with us as we continue to talk about uh, children's mental health. Coming up after the break, uh, we're going to hear from Connecticut Children's about the spike in emergency department visits. And a little later, we'll hear from U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. If you'd like to join us, 888-720-9677 with your question or comment. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today, we're talking about children's mental health and an increase in pediatric emergency department visits in Connecticut and across the country. Nationally, emergency department visits for suspected suicide attempts increased nearly 51% among 12 to 17-year-old girls. That's according to the CDC. Here in Connecticut, 30 young people between the ages of 10 and 24 died by suicide last year. That's according to the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Joining us now on the phone is Dr. Melissa Santos, Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children's. Dr. Santos, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I've cited that statistic from the CDC twice now. A 51% increase in suicide attempts by girls is really disturbing. Can you respond to that and what you and your colleagues are seeing at Connecticut Children's? Yeah, I think the, the statistic is startling, but we're not surprised by it. We've been seeing increases in both the rates of suicide and suicide attempts, as well as the rates and the increases in the amount of visits to the emergency room, even prior to the pandemic. A lot of what we're seeing right now, particularly here at Connecticut Children's, isn't necessarily the volume of kids coming into the emergency department, as much as it is the higher level of acuity that they're coming in with. So as you noted, a lot more kids coming in with suicide attempts, self-injury, eating disorders, and that higher level of acuity combined with what we're seeing here in the state of Connecticut, which is a complete clogging of the pipeline for mental health services, is leading to this overflow in our emergency department, whereas before we could get them to services that they needed, and now every program, every treatment facility is oversaturated, has too many patients in it, we're not able to bring patients in and out, and they end up sitting in our emergency department. So let's talk more about that. When you talk about uh, services and programs, uh, that there's uh, quite a, a bottleneck. Uh, and so, you know, families, caregivers feel like they've got no other place to go but the emergency room, Dr. Santos? I, I do believe that. We know that there, we're fortunate here in the state of Connecticut that we have 2 on one mobile crisis intervention services that can come out to your home if you are concerned about your child. But we know that oftentimes people will turn to the emergency room, particularly if they're very concerned about their child's well-being, their behavior, and they know it's a place that their child's going to be safe. And we definitely know that for many children, the emergency department may be where they have to start. It's just unfortunate that because there is such a bottleneck across all of our continuum of care, that they're unfortunately staying in the emergency a lot longer than we would like for them to be. Can you share some numbers with us when you look at pediatric ER visits, uh, what percentage are due to mental health crises? We have seen a steady increase over um, the start of the pandemic across the board in each quarter here at Connecticut Children's, but I think the real story comes in not so much in the volume, but the length of stay. So the amount of hours that kids are spending in our emergency room is almost double of what it was prior to the pandemic. So once kids are entering our emergency room, because of the higher level of acuity that they're coming in with and the inability to get them into services or other programs here in the state of Connecticut, they're staying in our emergency room almost double the amount of time than prior to the pandemic. 
And when we talk about these children, you know, what what is the age range and what communities are we talking about, Dr. Santos? So here at Connecticut Children's, we receive patients into our emergency room across the whole state, and we get it across the whole age group. We will get very young kids into our emergency room, and then we'll get our, our young children, our adolescents, our young adults as well. So we get the full age group here, and I think that's also the, the thing that concerns people is that mental health and the concern for mental health isn't an adolescent problem. We are seeing it in younger and younger kids, and we don't always have the right services for younger children. When you say younger and younger, how young? I mean, we've had kids in our emergency room four or five years old. Wow. And when I when I think about this this issue in our community, you know, even before the pandemic, uh, there have been reports of of parents that um, feel like they have nowhere else to go but the emergency room when there is a mental health crisis that their child is experiencing. And so, can you talk more about how this is such a long term problem? We know the pandemic now. When we think about the disruptions, uh, physical isolation, uh, children who've lost a loved one, there's fear, there's grief uh, because of those losses. And, and I'm just wondering if you can talk about how this is all you know, a culmination of this, this crisis that you're seeing right now. Yeah, when this, the pandemic initially started, we, we tried to describe it sort of like the way the state of Connecticut prepares for a blizzard. We hear about it. We hear it's coming. We pack our groceries. We get ready to sort of hunker down at home. And even though the days after you know, a major weather event may not be pleasant, we get through it. In many respects, we did the same thing here in the pandemic, right? We shut down schools, we prepared at home, we stayed home, but now we're approaching two years of this. The disruption to kids' lives has been startling. I think for many of us, the the fact that kids couldn't return back to school, even kids who hated school, didn't like school, who had problems getting into school prior to the pandemic, that disruption of not having school was so significant for them. We know that mental health sometimes gets put into this little bucket of like, oh, that's that clinic or that area that you talk about. And I think if we really want to make a true impact, if we want to help families, it has to start with prevention. It has to start that at every pediatrician office, at every medical visit, it's an asking of how are you doing mood-wise and making this a normal part of the conversation. I worry sometimes that mental health has such a stigma attached, as was mentioned earlier, that we don't talk about it or we worry that if we talk about it, we're going to put ideas into kids' heads. And I really think that it really has to be part of the everyday care of a child and an adult is that this becomes part of our regular conversation. When you talk about the, the regular conversation, you know, are we seeing this trickling down to pediatricians' offices, Dr. Santos, where uh, someone might be there with their child for a well visit, but there's other questions that are being asked of the child and the parent? We are. We are seeing um, some pediatrician offices doing this so well where they really are making this part of the care of the child. And many pediatrician offices are now embedding mental health workers in their pediatrician's offices so that psychologists are right there on staff and can go right into a room and see a kid that's in there for the regular medical visit if there's a concern along the way. But we know we have a lot more work to do around making that more widespread and making it financially viable for providers to have that. But I'm hopeful that we can expand it a lot more. 
You're hearing Dr. Melissa Santos, Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children's, as we talk about uh, this this crisis, this national emergency, looking at children's mental health, uh, a bottleneck of services, not just in Connecticut, but across the country, a shortage of clinicians and mental health providers to help to help children. Uh, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Connecticut's U.S. Senator, Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy, welcome. Senator Murphy, can you hear us? Can you hear me? I'm yes, here. We can hear you now. Thank you, Senator Murphy, for joining us on Zoom. You've been able to hear uh, a little of what Dr. Santos has shared with us. You know, what's your reaction to this crisis that's being seen here in our state? Well, it is a crisis, and it's not exclusive to Connecticut. It's multi-systemic. It's a problem of reimbursement, it's a problem of workforce, but it's also a problem connected to the increasing traumas that kids are facing. Um, You talk to any um, elementary school teacher across the state and they will tell you that they are seeing kids showing up to school with higher levels of trauma than ever before. And those are traumas uh, connected to uh, increased poverty, to increased uh, exposure to violence in many neighborhoods across the state. And so the only way to attack this is to um, really go at it through a number of uh, different ways. Um, And so that's why, you know, our agenda that we're working through right now, which is going to lift um, half of American children out of poverty, will have an impact on the mental health crisis. The money that we're going to be putting into anti-gun violence programs, it will have an impact on the mental health crisis. Um, But you can't just approach this from a preventative standpoint. We've also got to take a look at why you have so few adolescent inpatient beds, why you have kids being stacked up in emergency rooms, as Dr. Santos talked about. And there are some really important reasons for that that have federal policy solutions. Um, You know, I have two kids. Um, Luckily, you know, they are uh, healthy. Um, but my family has a you know, long history of mental illness that we talk about because we don't see it as uh, anything to be ashamed of. And so uh, I have a, a lot of firsthand experience with the barriers that a lot of families face and want to do something about it. Uh, now, we know you and Senator Bill Cassidy created mental health reform legislation in 2016. Um, the authorization period for this legislation is set to expire. So when we think about just this one uh, issue that we're talking about, and that's children's mental health, there's a lot of places that can be strengthened. And so can you talk about that? So the Mental Health Reform Act, um, which I wrote along with Senator Cassidy, a Republican from Louisiana, was the most comprehensive rewrite of the mental health laws in probably a generation. We passed it in 2016. A lot of the programs that we set up were good for five years. One of them was a problem, was a a national program modeled after um, a program started in Connecticut. It's a program where um, when a child or a family comes into a pediatrician's office, the pediatrician can get on the phone while that family is in the office, a psychiatrist or a mental health clinician for an uh, online or phone consult. Um, And we pay those mental health professionals to be on call, to pick up the phone whenever a pediatrician calls. Um, That program has been very successful. It's a way for pediatricians to get quick access to mental health expertise. So when they see an early um, onset um, mental illness, they can um, attack it um, very quickly. Um, We need to expand that program. And one of the things we talked about is 
you know, trying to get those mental health clinicians more deeply involved with pediatricians uh, and trying to find ways for pediatricians to have more mental health um, resources, either in their office or through those phone consults. Um, so that's one of the programs that's funded by that bill that expires in a year that we need to reauthorize. We've also been working on trying to get insurance companies to uh, pay more for mental health uh, interventions um, and, frankly, to stop putting up so much red tape and bureaucracy in front of families who are trying to access it. Uh, the Mental Health Reform Act of 2016 started coming after insurance companies that are denying mental health care, and we would like to build on that as we reauthorize this law sometime next year. Uh, Senator Murphy, you mentioned that uh, we can't just talk about uh, prevention, and you just went through um, some of the the avenues where uh, areas need to be strengthened. But when I think about um, the role of educators and how, you know, especially now, you know, they're able to see uh, children again and they're in front of them in class and they can, you know, have that connection with the child and the family. And when we think about all the federal money that has flowed into communities, you know, is there are there places where uh, there should be more accountability with how this money is being used to provide this type of support for families? I think there's a couple pieces to unpack here. You know, first, we've got to make a decision as a state as to whether we are going to put mental health in schools and build a school-based mental health system, or whether we're going to ask educational professionals to identify mental health issues um, and then have that support and treatment system in the community. Right now, frankly, we don't have a system in Connecticut. There are some schools that have health clinics. There are some schools that have an adequate number of mental health professionals. There are some schools that have no health clinics that have one uh, social worker for thousands of students. Um, and so when you don't have a system, um, you, you know, leave families to fight for themselves. So I have been pressing for years that the state needs to decide, are we putting mental health resources in schools? If that's our choice, then let's make sure every single school has adequate mental health resources. If we can't afford that, then let's train teachers on what we call mental health first aid, identifying early um, signs of mental illness, and then make sure that there's adequate resources in the community. The second piece of this is making sure that parents have what they need. I guess what's heartbreaking to me first and foremost is kids that are struggling with mental health, but the parents get victimized as well because they don't have any resources to help them navigate this system. More case managers, more people that can hold the hand of the family to try to figure out where the best resources are for the kid. Um, I think that's really necessary as well. Right now, we don't reimburse those people. If, you, uh, we, if you're a case manager, if you're somebody that's just helping navigate the system for a family, most insurers won't pay for that. Um, I think that's a big reform that we should look into. You've been hearing Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy here on Where We Live. Thank you, Senator Murphy, for joining us, and we'll wait to see uh, what happens with this uh, authorization period and what areas will be strengthened. We appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Again, you're listening to Where We Live as we talk about children's mental health. I wanted to take a quick call. Uh, Doug is calling in from Madison. Doug, you're on the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing well. What did you want to share? Well, I just just want to really follow on what you know, Senator Murphy was you know uh, was talking about in terms of amplifying you know, you know, access to uh, you know cost effective uh, prevention measures. It, you know, it, 
if we can prevent you know, um, you know one child you know from hurting themselves or another person, then you know then then they don't end up in a um, in a hospital. They can get they can receive treatment that um, that uh, can uh, help them, of course, you know, through um, a period of crisis. I, I'm a I work with the Sandy Hook Promise uh, as a Promise leader. Um, you know, I'm one of thousands um, who uh, who help um, schools um, you know, put in place programs that uh, that prevent not just gun violence but uh, but prevent um, self harm. And uh, there are programs such as Start with Hello that uh, that begin uh, in middle school uh, and primary schools, and then see something uh, programs for high schoolers, all backed up by an anonymous uh, reporting system, which gives uh, students agency kind of over their own kind of wellness and to look after uh, themselves if they see something on social media, you know, that is alarming, um, that alerts them that, uh, that somebody may harm themselves or others. So um, these are programs that are free to, uh, to school districts. Uh, it doesn't cost, um, it's all, it, it, the costs are all borne by uh, donations to the Sandy Hook Promise Foundation. Um, so uh, very, very important you know, kind of programming, which has been effective to, um, to help um, you know, save um, save children's lives as well as uh, you know, reduce um, stress you know, by you know, helping kids get what they need. Well, thank you, Doug, for letting us know about that uh, program. Uh, Alieska Tilly is still with us on Zoom. Uh, she was sharing her story earlier as a young person uh, who had struggled with uh, her mental health, and she went to the Internet and was able to get some good information. But, uh, Alieska, I'm wondering if you can share uh, your response to Doug about a program that gives children more agency as well uh, um, as they uh, look for help. Yeah, I think it's really important when we talk about mental health to include people who are struggling with the mental health, um, because a lot of times it is like very highly stigmatized and misunderstood. So when we're including children, especially and young adults in that conversation of um, what's happening with them, what are ways that they think that they can help each other with these programs and kind of creating this sense of community around mental health that is extremely important because we're building connections and foundations kind of from the bottom up. Um, and so that's a very important factor is to start these conversations, especially young. Um, that's another important thing is starting conversations at a young age that, as Chris Murphy also mentioned, you know, mental health is not something to be ashamed of. It's not something that we should keep hush-hush because that's clearly not working. Um, we need to have open and honest conversations about mental health and build connections at a young age um, and have this sense of community. So I think those types of programs are extremely, extremely important. I wanted to fit in uh, one more call, and then we hope that Dr. Santos can uh, stay with us. I have some more questions for her. Uh, Catherine is calling in from West Hartford. Catherine, you're on the show. Oh, hi. Um, I wanted to just uh, share our experience and give a, sh a shout out to the 211 service that's available in the state of Connecticut that really helped us. Um, our daughter has survived anorexia. It was an eight year long journey. She went through middle school and high school. And we have the odds stacked heavily in our favor since we have excellent schools in West Hartford. We have excellent state of Connecticut um, and some health insurance. I was able to leave my job and stay home and be a full-time caregiver for our daughter. And still it was a near impossible, felt like an impossible journey trying to get her to 
a recovered place. Um, it's very complicated. Um, staff and schools don't know how to deal with something like anorexia when there's self-harm and suicidal ideation involved and health insurance wants to cut off coverage. We have great facilities and access to CCMC and treatment facilities all over the state. So we utilized everything we could to try to help her. And it still was with all the resources that we had, uh, it was very, very complicated, and it doesn't seem like it needs to be. And one thing that did help us along the way was that 2 on one service that is available to state of Connecticut residents, and they have an emergency crisis medical um, a mobile unit that would come out to our house and help us when we were in a real crisis situation at home, and we weren't sure if we should take our daughter to the emergency room or not. So I just wanted to add that little layer that's available that a lot of states don't offer, which is a real plus in the state of Connecticut. Thank you, Catherine, uh, for your call, and I'm glad that you're able to get help uh, for your child. Uh, Dr. Santos with Connecticut Children's, you're still with us. Uh, so when we heard from Senator Murphy, we're hearing from uh, residents about uh, services and programs that are out there. Um, you know, before we let you go, you know, what would you like to see in the near term to help with this crisis? I think there's a couple things. I think as Senator Murphy kind of expressed, there's some services that we don't get reimbursements for. So those people that really can help connect families to services, like our case managers, our care coordination services, we don't always get reimbursed for those services, so they're hard to continuously offer. I'd also love to see us do more with peer specialists. You know, we know that there's such a stigma attached to mental health, and I really think that those that have been through that journey can really be of great benefit to those that are on the journey now. We have had some wins in this mental health pandemic during um, COVID, and I think the biggest win that we've had is with increased use of telehealth. It hasn't worked for everyone, but it surely has helped a lot of families to be able to access providers much more readily than they could before from their home. Um, And so I think the more that we can do to ensure that telehealth capabilities remain available to families and open that up to families that maybe don't have Uh, Wi-Fi or reliable internet, the more that we can open that up, I think that would also be helpful moving forward. You've been hearing Dr. Melissa Santos, Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children's. Dr. Santos, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Also with us was Alieska Tilly, who's a graduate student of social work at the University of Connecticut. Alieska, thank you for sharing your story and for the work that you're doing with the Jordan Porco Foundation. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for starting these conversations. It's very important. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, we're going to hear from Connecticut's child advocate, Sarah Egan, and we'll continue to take your calls, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate, as we talk about children's mental health. Sarah, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's been interesting to hear from our guests, uh, but I also feel like 
this uh, children's mental health crisis has has been with the state for some time. So uh, as you're in your role as child advocate, you know, where do we need to see um, areas strengthened to help children and families? I think so. such an important question, Lucy. And I think a lot of things we've heard today are are right on, um, particularly what we've heard from um, from Senator Murphy. You know, it's prevention, it's resources and it's priority. I mean, I would say resources, resources, resources. We do not pre-COVID, COVID, as we leave COVID, we don't invest enough in mental health. We just don't. We don't invest enough in prevention. We don't invest enough in our nonprofit system, which is the children's mental health system. Are the nonprofit providers? We have flat funded or underfunded so many services for children and families and adults for years and years and years. We have not enforced parity requirements. We have not ensured coverage for case management and care coordination. And, and, and while there have been important improvements in the children's mental health system over the last decade, and there have been investments in evidence-based services, um, and, uh, bringing more children home from out-of-state residential treatment facilities, we're still really, we, it, it's relative. We're nowhere where we need to be from a resource standpoint. Mm. The state got billions of dollars, billions in federal stimulus dollars. What percentage of that went to new investments in children's mental health? What percentage of that went to shore up our, our, our desperate and struggling nonprofit community-based mental health providers who are the ones taking children out of the emergency departments, who are the ones we want to hold families' hands as they, as they deal with their panic and their fear and their grief and their child's needs, right? We, we can't keep underfunding that system. We have to put our money where our mouth is not just on treatment, um, as, as we're talking about here, but also on the prevention issues, Sarah. more children living under poverty, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah, you mentioned uh, the, the federal money. Again, I had asked uh, Senator Murphy that as well. Uh, so much that has flowed into communities and so little, as you say, has been allocated towards children's mental health. And so, you know, how do we get to that point? Um, because this crisis is happening every day. You know, are we, what particular departments do we need to hear from the governor on this? I'm just curious, you know, <laughs> how we think about yeah. funneling this money. The money is there, but I how do we funnel it right. to these particular areas of need? That's right. So, um, there is money there, right? And we have to think about how we're going to use it. You know, there are um, stories about, you know, good stories about how Connecticut is cl- climbing out of it, some of its um, some of its financial holes, right? Uh, big dollars in the rainy day fund. That's great. But you know what? It's raining. It's raining right now for all these kids and all their families and all of their teachers. And we have to use some of that money now, right? There are more ARPA dollars. They can, they can get released now to the to children's and adult mental health providers, right? We have to look at and help our school districts uh, use their ESSER funding because um, they had a different pot of, of federal money um, in the most strategic ways to support school-based mental health and partnerships with community and social service providers. But we can't, those partnerships won't work if those community mental health and social service providers are dramatically underfunded, which they remain. So we have to release more ARPA dollars to support 
um, the mental health providers. We have to uh, in increase uh, the, the contract dollars for children's and adult mental health providers. We have to immediately be looking at school-based mental health. So last session, the legislature passed a bill uh, requiring a working group to report back um, early this coming session on school-based school health centers and school-based mental health with actionable recommendations. So we need to be fast-tracking that work and getting those recommendations to legislators as soon as possible. Really heartened that the Connecticut Children's Committee from the General Assembly held a hearing on these issues last week, and the Speaker of the House is going to be holding um, his own hearing legislative forum next week to talk about actionable solutions. Um, but money is a big part of it, Lucy. Money is a big part and priority and urgency. Um, and, and not just on the treatment piece, but also on the prevention piece. Mm -hmm. As Senator Murphy talked about, lots of children, more and more children struggling with poverty, children struggling with food insecurity, housing insecurity, isolation. Um, we can't just invest in systems that treat children's despair. We have to invest in children in systems that prevent childhood despair. And that's about uh, housing. It's about educational equity. Um, we, we, and another thing we have to think about here at Connecticut is we're facing this big labor shortage. It's affecting schools. It's affecting mental health providers. It's affecting everybody. So we're gonna have to really put our heads together to think about how dollars, workforce development, other can be um, addressed to make sure that vulnerable populations are not do not continue to be profoundly impacted um, in the way that they are. And Sarah, I'm glad that you brought up uh, when we think about shortages across uh, so many sectors, including uh, mental health providers in communities that are um, that are meant to help uh, children and families. Uh, Riney called in earlier from Fairfield. Riney, are you still there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead with your question and comment, because I think it's an important one. Um, yes, so I wholeheartedly agree with the holistic um, view that Sarah just presented. Um, as a member of the Fairfield Cares Community Coalition here in Fairfield, prevention is forefront of my mind. But um, what I mentioned earlier was really that we have to look at parents, too. Parents are struggling. Parents are anxious. Anxious and struggling and worried parents have a hard time raising healthy and well-adjusted children. It's another ding against children's um, ability to thrive. So we have to pay attention to when parents present with substance issues, with um, self-medication issues, and um, they might not seek help, but pediatricians or somebody else might see the parents struggling, and then you know, the child's struggling as well. So we have to look at the parents as well. Thank, Thank you. you for taking my call today, Lisa. Thank you, Riney. And uh, Sarah Egan, did you want to respond uh, to her? I think that's absolutely right. You know, it took us many years, but we now understand that children who are hungry in school can't learn, right? Children who are in despair can't learn. Children who are worried about their mom can't learn. Children who can't leave their siblings alone can't learn, right? Children live in the context of their families and communities. Strong communities, strong families make strong children. Um, one other point that we didn't talk about today, Lucy, that I wanted to mention is to talk about su suicidality in young children. We heard that suicide rates um, and, the, and suicide um, children who die by suicide are skewing younger and younger, which is very true, um, including this year in Connecticut, where uh, we have children as young as 11 um, who have died by, by likely suicide, and that number keeps going down. 
But I also wanted to say that our homicide numbers are going up too. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at numbers of the child um, officer, the child advocate co-chairs, the state's child fatality review panel. And we see some of our highest um, uh, homicide numbers as well. And when we talk about uh, teen homicides, right, and car thefts and, and some of the things that folks are, are concerned about, we're painting that too much solely as a public safety issue. But it's a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. It's a mental health crisis. These may, may not be the children coming into the emergency department for suicidality, but they are struggling with hopelessness and depression and fear, just the way other children are. And, and our juvenile justice issues are just as much about children's mental health as our suicide prevention work is. And so I think that's really important under who cannot incarcerate our way out of a children's mental health crisis. Um, so I wanted to make that point as well. There's a lot uh, here, a lot of intersections at play, and uh, we always appreciate uh, your time and the context you provide. Sarah Egan, who is the child advocate for the state of Connecticut, we're trying to get Governor Lamont back on the show. We hope to do that this month, uh, but we'll be sure to bring up some of the points that you raised with us as we talk about children's mental health and all of the different areas this touches uh, in our state. Sarah Egan, thank you. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Katie Pellico was on our phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app.